0: I'm Meg Dahl, your Unbreakable host. Welcome to the show. Welcome back to a brand new episode of the Unbreakable You podcast. Thank you for tuning in again with me this week and this intro is going to be super short because today's episode is a little bit longer than usual but it's totally worth it. So if you listen to the last two episodes of the podcast, you'll know that the conversation lately has been about hypothalamic amenorrhea, eating more, gaining weight, and all the related topics. So I shared my story with you two episodes back. The last episode, I had Sloane Pittman join me and we chatted about women's hormones, eating more, and all of that juicy stuff. Today we have the expert on herself. So Dr. Nicola Rinaldi, the author of No Period, Now What, sat down with me and we recorded this incredible episode all about hypothalamic amenorrhea, which we will refer to as HA throughout the entire episode, just so you know what's going on. But that's what today's episode is all about. So enjoy, guys. I know you're going to love this one. All right, Nico, we are on and I am so excited to be chatting with you today. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I love spreading the message about awareness about hypothalamic amenorrhea, which we will call HA for the rest of the show because it's such a mouthful. Um, and just the thing, some of the things that can lead to HA and how to recover. Um, you know, the some of the mental aspects, all of that. It's uh, I, this is work that I truly love. It makes me so happy. Um, so I'm,
0: thank you so much for having me. Yeah, well, for the past two episodes, I have been talking about HA, and I am just sitting here so grateful right now to actually have the HA expert on my show. You're an author of the book, No Period, Now What, and truthfully, I think that's the book that every single woman should have if her period goes missing. So I know we'll talk more about your book and whatnot later in the show, but why don't you introduce yourself and share your background with us for those who may not know you and know your story?
1: Absolutely. I'd love to. So um, I experienced HA myself um quite a long time ago now uh it was at the end of my graduate career so i did a phd in computational biology at mit um which is really very unrelated to all of this but um at the end of my graduate career um some of the guys in my lab decided to go on a diet and i was like oh yeah you know i should lose some weight i've got some love handles i could you know i could stand to be smaller and hey, I'm interested in getting pregnant. And I had read in so many places like lose weight to have a healthy pregnancy and lose weight to have an easier time getting pregnant, which is, you know, I don't even really know where that comes from, but it's just a message that's out there. So like, oh, this is perfect timing. So I dropped my calories significantly. Um, I was doing a lot of exercise at the time. I just, it was stuff that I loved doing. I was playing ice hockey and volleyball and lifting weights and playing squash with my lab mates and biking to and from work. And, you know, so it was a lot of stuff that I was doing, but it wasn't ever, you know, until that point of deciding I needed to lose weight. It was never about shaping my body. It was just about stuff that I enjoyed and getting stronger and fitter and all that. Um, so anyway, I, you know, basically stopped eating for a while. I lost a bunch of weight. I was like, this is amazing. I look Fantastic. And then I went off the pill to try and get pregnant. And my body was like, I don't think so. Um, So I didn't get my period after going off the pill. And in hindsight, it's so obvious. Like, you know, of course my body is going to shut down because I was completely not fueling it. Um, But at the time, I didn't really know what was going on. So I saw a bunch of doctors. And they said, "Ah, well, maybe you could gain some weight. maybe you could cut your exercise, but nobody ever really gave me guidelines as to what to do. So I, you know, I ate a little bit more and I cut my exercise a little bit and nothing happened. Um, So it ended up being a fairly long journey. Um, I ended up doing fertility treatments and um, I got pregnant about 18 months after I first went off the pill. So, you know, it involved failed injectable cycles and all sorts of things. Um, But eventually I did ovulate naturally and get pregnant while we were waiting to do IVF. so i feel very lucky that you know everything kind of lined up just at the sort of last the last stage before you know before hitting ibf there's nothing wrong with IVF, but you know it just i think if one can do it naturally it's just better overall and obviously having your period and that you know, all those monthly changes in hormones are really good for your body and your mental health and So it's overall a good thing to be working towards getting your period back, even if you're not interested in getting pregnant.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's so important, actually, that we make sure we talk about the importance of getting your period back, whether or not you actually want babies. I mean, I'm working to get my period back right now, but I'm definitely not trying to conceive right now either. But I know that it's a super important marker for our health as females. So why don't you share a little bit more about that with us?
1: Absolutely. Um, I think, you know, there's a lot of misinformation out there about periods. Um, I, you know, I've sort of seen a few vegan bloggers or, you know, Instagrammers who are like, oh, I lost my period. It's awesome. You know, no blood means all these good things. But there's actually no scientific backing for that. These are these are just people who actually don't have any kind of medical expertise who are sharing this and saying, "Oh, it's great." Um, so that you know, I, I really encourage people to look at the research and you know what's actually out there in terms of the medical understanding of the importance of your period. Um, so there are a couple of things that are that our hormones are particularly involved in. Um, one of them that many people have probably heard about is bone density. So our bones actually have estrogen receptors in them. And so um, when we have estrogen that changes monthly, like our estrogen increases as we get towards ovulation, um, and then it stays high, you know, basically from the time we ovulate until we get our period, that is all helpful in building bone. So in women that aren't getting their periods, um, there seems to be a rate of bone loss of about 2.5% per year which is pretty significant because you should be building bone density from your teenage years, you know, pretty much up to your early your early to mid 40s. So if you don't have your periods for part or all of that time, um, you know, that can have some fairly significant effects on your bone density, which is something you don't notice. But certainly later in life, it becomes really important. Um, and it's easy to say, oh, you know, that's 20, 30, 40 years down the road. I don't care. But I promise you, when you get there, it's going to, you, you know, you don't want to look back and like want to kick your previous self for not actually taking it seriously. It's a big deal. I mean, I, my co-author Lisa, um, her mom has osteoporosis and she can break a bone just by stepping off a curb. You know, it's, this is a really, really big deal. Um, so I think it's really important that women who are in their younger decades um, take it seriously and focus on making sure you have your period and, you know, you're you're sort of getting enough calcium and all of that for really building bone density as much as possible. Um, one nice thing is that it is possible to increase bone density if you, you know, if you already have lowered bone density from not having your period. Once you get your period back, I've seen a lot of women who have had, you know, multiple DXA scans, the, the bone scans. And their bone density has increased after recovery. So it's, it's not, you know, it's not irreversible. I mean, obviously it's better to never have lost your period, but even if you had, you know, even if you have lost it, that's done, that's in the past. So you need to do what you can now to improve your health. And that is very much getting the period back. Um, so that's the bone density side. And then there are also just so many other health effects. Um, you know, there's short term stuff, like when you're not, you know, when you're not having those monthly changes in hormones, your estrogen is low all the time. It means you probably have low libido, you probably don't have any lubrication, it makes, you know, intercourse more challenging and less fun. Um, you know, hair and nails can be brittle. And, you know, a lot of women as they recover, they're like, wow, my hair is just growing so amazingly, it's so full and healthy. And um, you know that kind of thing. There are there are likely effects on our hearts. So um, if you have low estrogen, it means that the vessels in your heart don't dilate properly, um, and so that can cause cardiovascular issues down the, down the line. There's some studies that are ongoing at this point. Um, Dr. Shufelt out in California is working on on this issue. So if anyone is interested, you can look at her research. Um, And then there's also suggestions of, um, you know, potentially increased risks of early dementia, um, which is another, you know, it's another thing that, you know, in in our younger years, we don't really think about too much, but like my mom has Alzheimer's now and it's just, it's so hard to, to Mm -hmm. watch somebody you love go through that. So I think anything that we can do to prevent that is, you know, it's definitely a bonus. And also um, I was recently reading some work by Dr. Geraldine Pryor and she finds that, in women that aren't getting their periods and don't have the progesterone, there's a higher chance of breast cancer down the line. So there, I mean, there are just so many positives to getting your period and all of the hormones that are associated. And it's not really, it's not really about the bleed. It's about the changes in hormones that come as our body works toward ovulation and then ovulates and then menstruates. So it's not like if you're on the birth control pill, it's not the same thing because you there mm-hmm. are there are over twenty hormones that are associated with our menstrual cycle. If you're on a birth control pill, you're getting one or maybe two of them. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's important to understand that it's really not the actual bleed that's important. It's all of those hormonal changes that go along with it.
0: Yeah, and I just First, want to thank you for sharing all of that. But now that we are on the topic of birth control, I think there's a lot of misinformation around like HA and post-pill amenorrhea. Do you want to touch on that? Because I think you have a lot of knowledge to share.
1: So there is this idea in the medical community that you know, the, the the medications from the pill can prevent you from cycling for some amount of time after you go off the pill. Um, I haven't, I think it's really important that if you don't get your period fairly soon, like within a month or two after going off the pill, that you start investigating to see what's going on. Because um, there was one study that actually looked at the research around this idea of post-pill amenorrhea. And they found that really it's, it tends to be much more underlying conditions that are causing the amenorrhea that can be investigated and treated rather than just, oh, your body takes a while to kind of recuperate from the hormones. Um, That may be the case for some small number of people, but for the most part, if you're not getting your period um, within a month or two after going off the pill, it very well could be HA, so you need to look at your lifestyle choices. You know, how much are you exercising? How much are you eating? Is it possibly you're under eating? How much stress are you under? Um, you know, take a look at your blood work. Is your is your estrogen is your estrogen low? Is your LH low? So LH is luteinizing hormone, and that tends to be the best marker for HA that I've seen. So in women that have HA, it's often less than two. Maybe it's two to three to four. Um, normal is sort of more like six seven eight Um, so it's possible to have ha and have a normal lh but in many women it is low so that's you know that can be a good marker to look at it's always worth investigating the sooner you can investigate your missing period the better so like don't you know it certainly wouldn't wait six months or a year which is what some doctors will say like definitely get it checked out before that
0: Yeah, I know for me, I recovered from anorexia, but then was definitely dealing with orthorexia. And it was during that time that I was still not getting my period back for obvious reasons after recovering from anorexia. And then the gynecologist put me on birth control because she was like, you need your period. And then I was on that for a handful of years. But really, we know that I wasn't actually getting my period during those years.
1: Because you weren't ovulating. No. a, A bleed from the pills is simply a withdrawal bleed from the progesterone. It, it's nothing, you know, it says nothing about your natural hormones. If you're on the pill and you're not bleeding, that's even more of a red flag. So if that's if that's the case for anyone listening, I really encourage you to think about going off the pill and, um, you know, even, even stay on it for a little while, but just examine your lifestyle habits and really be honest with yourself, you know, check in with friends and family and say, you know, is this something that could be happening to me? Um, on my website, I have a resource sheet for people, just kind of like a one page sheet to kind of check in and give you some information about HA. Um, You can get that at um, noperiod.info/ha. Super easy. So it's just a, a one page information sheet and the first chapter of my book so that people can kind of read it and get a sense of if this is something that might be affecting them.
0: Okay, and now I really want to talk about your book because it truly is amazing, and I really do encourage everyone to head over to your site, grab that first chapter. I know that's what I did a while ago, like a long while ago, um, when I was just kind of like, okay, I'm not getting my period, and I've been... You know, I'm using air quotes. I've been trying to get it back for how many years? And nothing's changing. Like, nothing's changing. So, that was a huge flag for me to actually change something about what I was doing. Mm -hmm. So, I reached out to one of my friends who got her period back after a very similar, like, history of what I experienced. And she first told me to grab your book. So I went over to your website and downloaded that chapter and obviously grabbed your book shortly after. So you have a huge passion and so much knowledge about HA. So let's talk about your book for those who don't know what it's all about.
1: Absolutely. I'd love to. And thank you so much. Like that's that's really what my whole goal is, is for people to go grab that chapter, read it and be like, wow, this is me. And then, you know, there's so I mean, there's so much information in the book. So there are there are five different sections. Um, The first one is kind of information about H.A., um, understanding why an energy deficit can cause missing periods, um, comparing H.A. with PCOS, which is a common misdiagnosis. Um, you know, explaining more about the brittle bones and the health impacts, um, talking about diagnosis, like what should your doctor be doing to kind of figure out if you have HA or there are other things that can cause missing periods. So it, it is important to go and see a medical professional and really get, you know, all of the tests done. I mean, you can have hyperlactin, which can suppress your reproductive hormones. Um, so, you know, there, there are other things. Typically, if you've got sort of the lifestyle factors, like you exercise a lot, you maybe watch your eating, um, the the under-fueling can be intentional or unintentional, Um, but just, you know, reading that chapter, I think, can really help you kind of gauge where where you're at. So that's the first section. The second section talks all about recovery, so it outlines... of my the the recommendations for you know how much energy you actually need which i think is something that people really um don't understand i think there's a lot of misinformation, and then just some ideas for you know why you should why you need to cut out high intensity exercise which is another very strong recommendation um so it's all the science behind that i also did a survey of over 300 women who likewise experienced ha Um, so just a little bit more about the genesis of the book um, so after I experienced HA and I got pregnant eventually, um, I got put on modified bed rest for a while because I was having a lot of contractions. And they're like, you just need to sit on your, you know, rear end and do nothing. So like, okay, I will do that. Um, and then I found I found an online message board that had, you know, it already had a couple thousand posts. And so I just joined that to share what I knew and my story and kind of help others. because I had all this free time now because, I, you know, I wasn't able to exercise or anything. Um, and so I just I loved it. I loved sharing my knowledge. I loved helping other women recover their periods. And after a while, you know, after four or five years, a lot of the women on the board sort of said, You know so much, you should write a book. And I was like, Huh, yeah, I should. It's not something I ever imagined myself doing. But it was like I had I had a I had a point. I, I wanted to share all this information. Um, so that's that's how the book Came about, So I, I surveyed all of those women to you know, put the information in the book because that's something that really wasn't out there, like data about how long it commonly takes to recover, how much we need to eat, um, what kind of exercise can we do or not do, um, you know, how long it takes to get pregnant for those who are interested in that. So I, I asked, I mean, my survey was, it took people about uh, 45 minutes to complete the survey. It was very comprehensive. Um, so all of that data I share in the book, you know, sort of ideas about body size for women that have HA, you know, there's this idea out there that you have to be, you know, sort of close to anorexic and in a teeny tiny body in order to have lost your period for this reason. And that is really not true. Women can lose their periods at any body size. And I think that's something that's really important to understand because a lot of doctors will look at a woman and say, oh, you're, you're not that thin. You don't, you know, that's not your problem. It's like, no, it's more about the underfueling for your personal mm-hmm. body size. So we're all different, you know, it and I mean, it's, so there's, like I said, there's a lot of information and misinformation about how much fuel about women's body actually needs. Um, so then there's also support in that chapter, ideas for how to, you know, like getting rid of your scale, getting new clothes, all the things that can help make this recovery process easier. Um, along with a lot of stories from the women from the board, because I think that, hearing from others who have gone through this or are going through this and might share the same thoughts and feelings as you makes makes the whole process much easier too so I've, there are over 200 like little quotes from other women um who've experienced this and kind of peppered throughout the book um the third section is all about um getting pregnant so uh, what you know sort of ideas about getting pregnant if you have your natural cycles back um if you are a little bit more impatient and might want to use fertility treatments because often women don't discover their missing period until they've decided they want to get pregnant. Um, And so, you know, it it can take the average time to period recovery is about eight months. Um, Median is five to six months. So, um, you know, if you really want to get pregnant today, there, you know, there are things that you can do. I really encourage women, if they are interested in getting pregnant to definitely work on recovery before they go down the road of fertility treatments because it just makes the fertility treatments work so much better Um, and lots of other reasons. Um, And then the fourth section is sort of after pregnancy, after recovery, you know, living a life that's free of um, restriction and, uh, you know, free of obsession about exercise and just some tips about that. Um, And then the last section is more of this, more longer stories from women on the board, so in, in a bunch of different categories, and just that way people can sort of look at somebody's journey from start to finish and see like what was their mindset when they first started this and how you know how did they feel by the end and I think that that's really helpful too, especially when you're just starting because it can feel so scary to think about making all these changes to think about gaining weight where society tells us that over and over again that smaller is better and you know being muscular is better and to kind of go against that can be really challenging. Um, So reading about some of the positives of recovery, I think is really, really helpful. Um, So yeah, that's, that's the book in a large nutshell.
0: (laughs) That's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. And honestly, one of my favorite parts of the book is just reading the stories and the little quotes from the other women, because not too many people well i mean i think more people deal with ha than we realize and i know you have a facebook group so once you purchase the book you'll get the link or is anyone welcome to that facebook group
1: any anyone is welcome to join the group just intended to be a place where people can learn more about ha Get more support for their personal journey. You know, obviously, I recommend the book because I do think that you know it's an incredibly comprehensive resource and very helpful for recovery. But I, you know, I'm not, I don't require it to be in the group um, because I really just want to help people recover. Like, this is not for me. It's not about making money. It's about helping people and you know, it's, yeah, I mean, that's the, the joy that I get when somebody posts in the group or somebody, you know, that I'm working with calls me and says, I got my period. It's just like the best feeling. The link for the group is no period.info slash support. That
0: group is awesome. And your book is just absolutely incredible. So thank you so much for sharing all of that with us. I really do encourage anyone listening right now to head to your website and grab it. I absolutely love the book and have read the chapters like multiple times over just because I love the way you've laid things out. And there's just like so much good information in there. So why don't we chat more about some specific things? One thing that you have touched on already is blood work. Do you want to like go into that a little bit more? Because I think that makes it real for a lot of women they're like yeah okay I don't have my period and then that you know like it's not really feeling like a real thing to them but then they go get their blood work and that's like a really good reflection on what's actually happening within their body
1: yeah so as far as blood work goes like I said it is possible to have HA and have like absolutely completely normal blood work so the things that we typically check um, our FSH and LH, so follicle stimulating hormone and luteinizing hormone. Those are sort of the two main drivers of your menstrual cycle. Um, so normal is sort of around the six to seven range. It can be a little, little bit higher, can be normal as well. Um, in women with HA, LH is often low, as we spoke about. So it might be really low, like under the lab's normal range, which is usually about two it might just be on the lower side of normal. So it's um, a lot of doctors will look at that and say, oh, your hormones are normal. But if your LH is two or three or four, that's still suppressed from where it should be. Um, so that's a sign that your hypothalamus is not working properly. Um, so we haven't really talked about that much yet. The hypothalamus is an organ in your brain and it controls a lot of your hormonal systems. So it takes in input from all over your body. It takes in other hormones. Like when you eat, your, your stomach releases hormones, your liver releases hormones, your, um, you know, your, your fat actually releases hormones. That's a hormonal organ too, which not a, not, not a lot of people realize. Um, and so your, your hypothalamus takes in all of those inputs and then based on sort of the overall levels that it's at, it, it releases other hormones. So it releases hormones to help keep you warm. Um, it controls uh, hormones that make you feel hungry, make you feel full, um, and it controls the reproductive system. So when your LH is low, um, that basically is a signal that your hypothalamus is not working properly. So it normally releases pulses of a hormone called gonadotropin-releasing hormone. But then you know, tells your pituitary to actually release LH and FSH. It's a little bit complicated. Um, But so LH is a marker of a hypothalamus that is suppressed or shut down. So low LH is. Um, Same thing with FSH. If your FSH is on the lower side of normal, um, three, four, that can be even more of a sign your hypothalamus is suppressed because that tends to remain normal unless it's, unless the hypothalamic suppression is even more severe. Um, so those are sort of the two prime things that I look at when I'm looking at somebody's blood work. Um, other things that can be informative, um, as I said, estradiol is often uh, sort of, again, on the low side of normal or below normal. Um, that is not as good a marker of HA because it doesn't tend to change that much until you actually are getting closer to ovulation. So it, you know, whether it's 20 or 30, not really not really material to, to somebody's recovery. Um, other hormones that can be signs of HA, um, there's SHBG, which is sex hormone binding globulin. Um, researchers are finding that that tends to be quite high in women with HA. Um, That's actually one way to distinguish between HA and PCOS because in somebody that has PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome, the SHBG tends to be low, which leads to a lot of free androgens, and that can cause some of the symptoms of PCOS. Um, AMH, anti-malarian hormone. Is another one that is often high in women with HA, and that's associated with having a lot of follicles, um, which is a commonality again between HA and PCOS, and one of the reasons that the two are often confused. Um, so I think those are the those are the things that I most commonly look at. If you're talking in terms of diagnosis, um, it's also good to get prolactin tested because, as I said, that can high prolactin can be a cause of missing periods as well, um, and if. If there's a suggestion of PCOS, then I would have some of the androgens tested. So free testosterone, androstenedione, um, DHEAS, and then um, 17-hydroxyprogesterone is another one that should be tested because that can um, high when that hormone is high, that can be a sign of congenital adrenal hyperplasia, which is another PCOS-like disease. So it, you know, it's good to sort of have all of those tested just to rule those things out. Um, So, yeah, that's that's sort of more on the diagnosis side.
0: Awesome. And I think diagnosis is so important, too, just to actually make sure you know what your condition is and where you're starting from. So if a woman is going without her period, like she notices she doesn't have her period, you would recommend her... Going to get blood work. What would be the other steps for her?
1: Um, I think really doing a little bit of self-reflection and taking a look at um, your lifestyle habits. I mean, we so we've been we've been taught, societally uh, through the media and what have you, that exercise is good, exercise is healthy, which is absolutely true, but but, and this is a big but, yeah. it's only healthy if you are fueling that at exercise appropriately. So there are a couple of issues that come up with this. One is, again, because, you know, society tells us that smaller is better, thinner is better, you know, God forbid you gain weight, um, you know, so that leads many of us to restrict our calories, either intentionally or unintentionally. Um, it can lead to restriction of different food groups. Um, and so, if you are restricting your food intake and then exercising on top of that, your body does not have enough energy available to actually fuel the things that it needs to do. Um, so, like your base, your basal metabolic rate is sort of the amount of energy that your body needs to expend on a daily basis. If you're just lying in bed doing nothing, you know, you're breathing your blood is pumping, your brain is working, your cells are making all kinds of proteins and synthesizing DNA. Like there's so much that our bodies are doing even if we're not active at all. And so there's that sort of baseline amount of energy that we need. And then on top of that, when we're up and about, we're burning energy through the day as we're moving our hands, you know, when we're talking like I am now, I'm waving my hands all over the place. Um, You know, walking around, going to the bathroom, uh, you know, walking to the store, walking to the mailbox, uh, you know, all of that is burning even more energy. Um, And then, you know, it it actually takes energy to digest our food. So we're, you know, we're burning more energy from that. Um, So our bodies are using up energy all through the day. And then, If we go out and we go for an hour long run and we don't eat beforehand, we don't eat afterwards, our body has no choice but to fuel that exercise because those muscles are moving, they're burning that energy. So it actually has to use up energy that it would like to use for other things. So that means, you know, if you've gone out and exercised, you know, 800 calories worth and you're only eating 1,800, that means you've only got a thousand calories left for everything else your body needs to do. So that kind of consistent level of underfueling um our hypothalamus takes that into account and so it the hypothalamus is the control center it has to decide where to you know how to expend the remaining energy so shutting down the reproductive system is a really easy one because you don't have to have period you don't have to you know be able to make babies which is you know so I think that's, that's sort of the, the explanation for why it is that our periods stop happening when we're in this state. Um, and I think it's, you know, there's sort of this idea out there that a woman needs 2,000 calories a day. Um, and that's based on self-reported surveys where, you know, they ask people, how much are you eating? And I think a lot of people tend to um, underestimate how much they're actually eating. So they did these surveys and they came up with this 2000 calorie number, which might be fine for most people, but I think women with HA, we tend to be perfectionists. And if we decide we're going to limit our calories, which many of us do, um, you know, you tell me 2000 calories is the number of calories I can have in a day. Um, I'm like, okay, so, well, I don't know exactly how much this particular food has, I'm gonna guess, 500 calories but when i was limiting my calories i always tended to i always overestimated like if i didn't know i overestimated because god forbid i eat more than i was you know quote unquote supposed to um so i think that's really common and so the 2000 calorie number is actually not accurate um so i talk about this i i really go into this in detail in the book um but there are a couple of much more accurate ways of measuring um body's energy intake and expenditure and so 2500 calories is a much more um is a number that's much more reasonable for you know you're a woman who's you know active and you know moving around a lot during the day and you know so that's that's sort of the number that i that i think people should be aiming for um now i think counting calories in general is stressful and not particularly helpful and you know it can lead to um, just too much focus on what we're eating and consuming um but it's important to, to understand how much we actually need so that's why i give the numbers but then i encourage people you know once you've figured out what 2500 calories looks like for you let go don't count anymore just you know just eat you know you know when you've eaten enough you know when you haven't eaten enough you know so i think it's important to kind of let go of the calorie tracking over time Um, But just as you're starting on this recovery journey to really make sure that that's, you know, that's about the amount that you're getting in a day. And then if you go, you know, if you're sticking with running or other exercise, you know, you have to eat even more than that to fuel that exercise so that your body really has enough to do all those other things that it needs to do.
0: Yeah, yeah, I fully agree with you. And I'm so happy that you did bring up like 2000 calories versus 2500 calories because I have brought up numbers on my show in previous episodes, and I've received a lot of comments and responses and questions asking me, like, Meg, why 2,500? So I'm super happy that I have you on because you did a lot of research and you have wrote a book with specific guidelines on how to get your period back. And I think one of the huge things. And one of the main reasons why women have such a hard time with like that 2,500 calorie number is, I mean, you mentioned that we've been told to eat 2000 calories, but I think so many women are tied to like this 1200 and 1600 max kind of thing. Like that's what they think is normal. So then when they hear a number that's nearly a thousand calories more, they think it's absolutely outrageous.
1: So, you know, I'm not just, I'm not just Dr. Nicola Rinaldi saying this on my own. This is, this is research that many other scientists have contributed to. And so one thing that i do in my book is that i reference all of the scientific studies so that anybody who's interested in more of the details can go and look at that for yourself um i think that's really important like especially when you're you know if you're doing research on the web um you know making sure that what you're reading is appropriately sourced that means they share the they share where they got their information from because there are a lot of people out there who make recommendations but they're they're not really qualified to do so, and they don't share the basis for those recommendations. So it's like person A um, says, you know, eat 1,200 calories. It's like, well, why? I mean, why should I eat 1,200 calories because person A, who, you know, may be a blogger or an Instagrammer or whatever, but, you know, what is the actual basis for that? Um, So I think it's really important to follow... Um, recommendations that are based in scientific research and where you can see why it is that this recommendation is being made. Um, So yeah, I mean 1,200 calories for most of us is not even what we need when, as we discussed, when we're lying down in bed all day, which you know, very few of us are actually doing so, I mean, when anybody says 1,200, they're only eating 1,200 calories I sort of, you know, I I, I gasp in shock and I'm, you know, I'm really sad to hear that there are any nutrition professionals who are recommending such a low amount because, um, you know, it's just it, it's just not healthy to be in an energy deficit all of the time, mm-hmm. which is basically what you are if you're only eat, if you're only eating that amount.
0: Yeah, and then just to share a little bit more about my personal story, and you can kind of like chime in with your expertise and what you've seen with the other women you've worked with, with the thousands of women you've worked with. But I really loved what you said about self-reflection. And that's really what I did when I got your book. You know, I knew I wasn't intentionally under eating. After having an eating disorder, I went years with... My main focus being just not thinking about food. I was so focused on the fact that I spent so many years of my life thinking about food. So I was kind of like giving myself a green pass saying, okay, you spent so many years of your life hyper focused on food. You can just go ahead and not think about food anymore. And then Now I'm 27, and I'm like, okay, I want kids someday, so I might have to think about food a little bit to get my period back. And I'm really happy that you brought that up because, yeah, we shouldn't be, like, obsessive of the number, but there's importance there on knowing what you're eating, because it is easy for many of us perfectionists to overestimate the amount we're eating. So when I did some self-reflection, I pulled out like a calorie tracking app. And I did like a few days and I ate pretty consistently. So on average, I was taking in about like 1800 calories. And as I shared before, like that's not alarmingly low, but it's also not enough food for someone who doesn't have her period. Obviously
1: yeah yes and I think um do you, were you, did you were you exercising during that time yeah mm-hmm. what, what, what kind of things were you doing
0: so I've never been a runner never ever yeah. um okay. I also don't do anything like super high intensity what I do is I have a gym in my basement downstairs and I'll just like lift weights and whatnot so when I personally was doing the self-reflection, I looked at all of those areas of my life and I was like really honest and serious with myself. And I'm like, okay, exercise, why, how, how do I feel about that? And I mean, I just got back from a two-week holiday and I'm totally fine not exercising for two weeks or... I could lift a weight or two and enjoy it just as much as if I didn't do that. So I know my relationship with exercise is really healthy and I don't push myself like many women do, you know. Um, But anyway, so in that area, I just intuitively knew that it was like a food thing that I had to look at more seriously and being like okay I'm not intentionally restricting myself but how much am I actually eating and now I am intentionally eating more
1: yeah so I think I think the the one point that I wanted to make about the exercise is that um, that's one area that tends to throw off our intuitive hunger signals so often um, rather than when we exercise, when we do exercise, our bodies don't naturally give us hunger signals to compensate for that. And I'm not really sure why that is. Um, but there was a really interesting study that was done where they took, um, they took a group of men and they had them go into a buffet and eat from the buffet and they measured how much they ate. Um, and then they had them on a different day do 800 calories worth of exercise and then go to that same buffet. So the foods were all the same and everything. So they did eat more than when they had not exercised, but they didn't eat 800 calories worth of extra okay. food. So I think that's a really important point for people to understand, um, especially in somebody who has not been intentionally underfueling. But just if you are somebody who exercises, your body may not necessarily be encouraging you to compensate for that, you know, for the energy that you have burned. Um, I don't know if it's because there's some suppression of hunger signals while we're exercising. Um, I'm not really sure why it is, but it's something that I see over and over again is that women are not, I mean, men too, you know, this is, mm-hmm. this is not only restricted to women. It's just the symptoms are much more obvious in women. Um, but there's just this general, not properly fueling our exercise. And so if you're somebody who exercises every day or five or six days a week, and then you're consistently under fueling for that whole time. So, mm-hmm. um, I think that's a real, another really important point to understand. And um, in terms of exercise, uh, it seems like although exercise may in, in and of itself may not cause missing periods, it's much more to do with the underfueling. Mm-hmm. Um, exercise can cause our bodies to create stress hormones, and those stress hormones suppress the hypothalamus. Mm-hmm. So when you're working to recover your period, if you are doing high-intensity exercise, those stress hormones, even if you're eating enough, even if you're eating more than enough, um, those stress hormones can still keep the hy- hypothalamus suppressed. Mm-hmm. So that's why in the book we encourage people not only to increase food amounts and also food choices, um, which maybe we can talk about in a few minutes, um, but also to cut out high-intensity exercise because of that component of the increased cortisol and other stress hormones that then suppress your
0: hypothalamus. Right. Um, So like priority one would really be making sure that you're eating in surplus and getting your calorie intake up. And then kind of like the second layer would be really addressing everything that is another form of stress on the body, whether that is like mental psychological or even like your workout
1: stress hormones that can be created from your physical exercise and then yes absolutely mental stress also creates those stress hormones um and it's funny because women may not even realize that they're stressed but a lot of times if you're tracking your steps if you're counting your calories if you're you know planning your meals out to the nth degree um all of that is actually stressful so you know this that can also all play a part in keeping us from keeping us from our periods back so that's another reason just to encourage women to you know figure out how much food you really need and then stop the tracking like stop counting macros stop counting calories stop counting your steps um you know just i think living more freely and intuitively it's just you know, it's it frees up so much mental energy for other things, which is, you know, it's really nice not to just have to worry about, oh, did I get my steps in today? Oh, did I, you know, where am I on my calories? I mean, it's just, it's it's so much better to live without all of that.
0: Big time. I fully agree with that. And just one more point, And then we'll talk about like the food and how to actually do the action of eating more. But so many women that I work with, and I've noticed this even within my own life, but once you start fueling your body adequately, the thoughts about food that you might be having will become less and less and then like non-existent. Yes, absolutely. So let's talk about eating more because who wants to eat 1800 calories if you can eat like 2500 calories or more right I mean food's awesome I love eating lots
1: (laughs) um so a couple things around food one is that there's so much fear-mongering around food that goes on these days like you know everybody is anti-carb anti-sugar anti-dairy anti-gluten um you know there is some validity to some of that for some people, but I think it's really key to understand that when a, a lot of these studies that these um, prescriptions are based on, they're done in a, you know, in a constrained group of people, like maybe people who have a tendency towards diabetes already. And so then maybe in that group of people, they find that eating, a lo- eating low carb leads to less incidence of diabetes. That doesn't mean that low carb is right for everybody. Um, so I think that's really a really important point for people to understand is that a lot of these things that we're told, like, don't eat any sugar, don't eat any carbs, it's based on studies that are done in a very small, specific group of people. And there's no reason to take all of that information and apply it to yourself. Now we're each individuals, we have a unique genetic makeup, we have a unique upbringing we have, you know, we live in a different way, we exercise different amounts, so to have this blanket statement, like, carbs are bad for everybody, I'm like, sorry, no, I mean, it just doesn't make sense, our, like, our bodies are not black and white, we live in shades of gray, and I think that a lot of the um, hype around nutrition is very black and white, um, so it leads people to be afraid, and like, even when you're afraid, it's just no fun. I mean, you know, as you say, there's so many good foods out there, you know, having cheesecake is, you know, having a, having a cheese, like if you ate a whole cheesecake in a day, like you were not going to suddenly fall over dead. I mean, it just you know, it just doesn't work like that. You know, our health is about our long-term choices, our long-term relationship with food. Um, you know, if you have, six months while you're trying to recover your period and you have, you know, some McDonald's and you have some, you know, chips and you have some candy and cookies, pizza, whatever it is, you know, that's not going to impact your long-term health and foods like that can actually be, it's easier to eat a lot or to eat the amount of calories that you actually need because those foods, um, they're palatable. They're fun to eat. They taste good. They, you know, they make you feel good. So it's easy to use those types of foods, um, Obviously, and you know, in conjunction with other foods, you know, fruits, vegetables, you know, having a you know a balanced diet is great. But you know, if you have to shift the balance one way or the other in order to recover, there's nothing wrong with that, and it's not going to impact your long-term health. Other than getting back your period, which will impact your long-term health. So you know, the net positives are really on the side of eating all the foods, like getting rid of fear foods, you know, because. If there's a particular food that you're scared of, like, oh my gosh, I can't eat pizza because it's got carbs and it's got dairy and, you know, I'm not even really sure what the negative impact is supposed to be. But, like, challenge yourself to try eating that. See how you feel afterwards. See what happens. Um, so what what suggestions do you have for people to, to sort of try and eat more?
0: Yeah, I think that's so important to remove All restrictions. You know, you could be simply focusing on hitting that 2,500 calorie number every single day. And let's say you're doing that, but you're still restricting some foods, whether, like you said, Nico, it's pizza, or maybe you're still just fearing carbs a little bit or something like that. That fear is stress on your hypothalamus, and this is hypothalamic amenorrhea. So we really need to remove all forms of stress, and the women that I talk to who have regained their periods, it seems like in the end, they were really eating a balance of all of the macronutrients. So not restricting any of them and just really getting a great balance of them all. And I know that's what I've been focusing on within my own life. And truthfully, I feel and have always felt my best eating this way for about two years, I had to eat low carb for some health issues that I had. Um, I was dealing with a parasite for two years. And any minute that I, like I would eat just a small chunk of sweet potato, and I would literally blow up and be on the floor in pain. And so to manage my symptoms, I unfortunately had to limit carbohydrates. But luckily, now I am over that specific health challenge and am able to incorporate all foods into my diet. And yeah, basically, I am just really focusing on balance and getting a variety of foods in. I, one big change that I made since um, the summertime when I first started really truly working to get my period back is I added grains into my diet for the first time in like five years so I think it was back in 2014 it was I removed grains from my diet and I hadn't ate them since the summer. And now I am eating them. And it really is so helpful for me to get um, a balance of carbs in because if you're not eating grains, it's, it's quite difficult to get a lot of variety back in. And I think that um, people in my health space are so focused on nutrient density. So eating the most nutrient dense foods, but what really made me happy the other day is I've been loving, um, toast for breakfast and then I'll put like liver pate on my toast. And then on one slice I'll put liver. And then on the other slice I'll put mashed avocado. And like, that's a, really nutrient dense meal right there. And I'll have like sauerkraut on the side and stuff like that. And it's, it just made me laugh the other day, because some people will see bread as being like void of nutrients. And, you know, the paleo world, for an example, will think it's almost superior to replace that bread with a slice of sweet potato, for an example. It's like, well, I'm already eating sweet potato for another meal. So I'm gonna load my toast up with nutrient dense foods that have nutrients in it. Like liver is so important for female hormones as well. So I'm taking some foods that haven't been in my diet for a long time, like bread and um, rice has been a big one for me and adding those in and like making them a vessel almost for more nutrient density and it just really has helped me so much in getting my carbohydrates up oh and big bowls of oatmeal are another one for me super helpful mm-hmm.
1: Um, so a couple things that I, I was thinking about as you were talking there is I completely agree that getting you know balance is great, um, but that doesn't mean focusing on I have to have fifty percent um, you know protein and twenty percent fat like it do, There's no specific macro ratio that's sort of ideal for getting your period back. It's really just about eating food, and so like removing any kind of focus on the composition and you know. I have to get this amount and this like get rid of all of that kind of stuff. So I think like balance is really important, but not like not being super focused on balance, if that makes sense.
0: Absolutely. And that's really what I was getting at. Like I, before I started really working on getting my period back, there'd be some meals where I'm like, oh, I just really don't feel like protein. But then at the end of the day, because I chose not to, eat protein at that meal, I wasn't eating enough calories by the end of the day. So for me, I'm not super specific on the macro ratios being exactly balanced. But it's like when I make a meal, I'm like, okay, where's my protein? Where's my carbohydrates? Where's my veggies? And then let's put fat on this meal to make it taste good and more you know, calories and energy and things like that.
1: Yes, exactly. Um And, oh, shoot, I had something else I wanted to say, and it's now escaping me. I mean, I think just really eating, you know, and it's also okay to eat foods that are not necessarily quote-unquote nutrient-dense. Like, yes. Again, all foods should be on the table. Um, You know, if you want to have a cookie, you know, I think, A lot of people notice things like when they go to work, you know, actually partaking in the work celebrations that have food involved, you know, instead of standing on the side and, you know, people will say, oh, you have such great willpower, but you're also kind of missing out and, Mm -hmm. you know, sharing that experience, not being the one standing on the wall, like, oh, no, thank you. You know, I think that that can really, you know, that's one of the benefits of this recovery is realizing that, yes, you can have a piece of cake and. Nothing's going to happen. You know, you'll be fine. It's you know, you'll enjoy the the camaraderie with your coworkers, or you know, being you know friends, family, wherever you are. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a big part of recovery too is sort of reigniting some of your relationships because I think that a lot of times when we are in the space of being hyper focused on what we're eating and making sure we're getting in X amount of exercise every day, we tend to put that ahead of things like getting together with friends. You know, it's like mm-hmm. I have to exercise you know, oh, I can get together with my friends some other time. And that can lead to, you know, losing some of those relationships or backing away from them, Not you know. And relationships are so much of what makes us human. And, like, that's really so much of where our joy can come from. Um, so I think that's another huge benefit to working on recovery like this is realizing, like, maybe re-prior- reprioritizing your life a little bit to so not focus as much on sort of those things that are, about your physical appearance but mm-hmm. more about your relationships and your place in this world and the work that you do and you know how can you help other people
0: mm-hmm. um, so i think
1: that's another really strong benefit to recovery yeah um, i did i did remember what i wanted to Great. say so there are some women in whom like when they start restricting their food intake or they start you know they say oh I, you know maybe i have a gluten sensitivity so i'm not gonna eat that anymore and, oh, maybe, you know, maybe I'm allergic to dairy, so I'm not going to eat that. And so the foods that they eat get, you know, those sort of amounts, of, the types of food they eat get smaller and smaller. And then when they say, okay, now I'm ready to eat more, um, it can lead to feelings of discomfort. You know, it can lead to feelings like maybe you have IBS, um, that kind of thing. So I think... You know, it's kind of it's it's kind of like a chicken and egg scenario. Like did you start restricting first and then you had these, you know, your body maybe is no longer producing as many of the enzymes it needs for digestion, and so then you feel poorly when you eat, and so then you restrict even further. Um, so that can be something where especially working with a dietitian can be really mm-hmm. helpful to try and add back, you know, add back energy and then maybe increase the, the sort of range of foods that you're eating because I have seen a lot of women who come to my group who have IBS and are able to recover from that, based on you know eating more, you know eating more and getting more energy, and to start with, and then increasing the range of foods that they eat, and finding that actually no, they're you know gluten is fine or dairy is fine. Um, so I think that's that's something to be aware of.
0: Yeah, I'm so happy you brought that up because that's definitely what I have found for myself for sure. Um, I still get extremely ill when I have gluten, but I do, I've never been tested for celiac, but when I was eating it back in like 2013, um, I was extremely underweight and that's like a huge sign that your body is not tolerating gluten. And, um, anyways, I've tried to add it back in and whenever i'm exposed to it even unknowingly i get extremely ill
1: that's that's completely different from yeah. somebody who's kind of decided oh you know maybe i'm gluten intolerant because it feels good to like restrict my food to understand what your true allergies and sensitivities are as opposed to what maybe your mind has decided you're,
0: you know, right sensitive. exactly and that's exactly where i was with grains and dairy for many years they weren't in my diet and then I was just like why am I avoiding these foods like I have no reason to avoid these foods so I added them back in slowly to see how my digestion did with them but honestly my digestion has never been better Mm -hmm. since I added them back in so there's some encouragement for our listeners if they need to start playing around with some reintroductions. Yep. Awesome. So Nico, I could talk to you for like a whole other hour and I just looked at the time, I was like, holy crap. Is there anything else you think we should talk about today that we might've not touched on yet?
1: So for somebody who has been diagnosed with PCOS, who maybe is restricting food, um, doing a lot of exercise, Maybe it is hypothalamic amenorrhea. Um, I have uh, another free download from my website is the, ch- the chapter in from my book that describes the differences between HA and PCOS. So for anyone who's been diagnosed with, you know, often doctors will call it thin PCOS or lean PCOS. Um, I do encourage you to check that out. So that's at no Um or you can just Google it, I'm sure. And, you know, it's really important to get the correct diagnosis there because the, the sort of treatment for HA versus PCOS is very different. I mean, for HA, you definitely want to be eating more and probably cutting out your high intensity exercise. Um, with PCOS, um, you know, it, it, some it's sometimes recommended to, you know, exercise more, eat less, you know, I think in somebody who's in a smaller body to begin with, I would challenge certainly the recommendations for eating less. Um, But, you know, that's another case where you need to be working with a specialist, you know, a dietitian, a specialist, hopefully a health-at-every-size dietitian so they're not going to be encouraging you to to lose weight. Um, And then a couple of, like, I have a ton of information on my blog, which, you know, um, people can find at my website, which is com/blog. So information on, um, like, some supplements that can be helpful or those that are not necessarily helpful in recovering for HA. um, Vitex is something that's often recommended, and I really, based on the research that I did looking at the scientific um, information out there about it, like the studies, I really do not recommend Vitex. Um, so just you know, being mindful again about where like the source of your recommendations, like just because you know website X Y Z says oh take Vitex, does not necessarily mean that you know if they're not sharing what they're basing that recommendation on, I wouldn't necessarily buy it. There's a ton of information on my blog, like about energy balance and the importance of eating your first thing in the morning and throughout the day, um, how long it can take to recover. Once you do recover, how long till, until you might get your second period. So there's a lot of, a lot of great stuff on there. So I really encourage people to check that out too. Yeah,
0: and I can put all of that in the show notes as well. I'll link everything up. Awesome, Nico. Thank you so much for joining me today. I know everyone's just going to love this episode and probably listen to it multiple times.
1: I hope so. I really, I, as I said, I really love sharing information about this and helping women recover. It's, yeah.
0: Awesome. Well, you and I will definitely chat again. Sounds good. Kate, great day. Thank you.